Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educators. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here's your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Hello, everyone, and good day. Welcome to today's episode of the Chef Educator Podcast. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Now, before we start in on today's topic, I want to give our new listeners a little background information on the podcast. The Chef Educator Podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network and was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and veteran culinary, hospitality, and baking and pastry arts teachers, instructors, and faculty at both secondary and post-secondary educational institutions. Our hope is to offer you a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that you can use in your culinary classrooms or labs. And here is our big ask. If you enjoyed this episode or the Chef Educator podcast overall, please be part of keeping these resources free while also helping to support the creation of future resources by making a donation through our Patreon or our Buy Me a Cup of Coffee links. And they are www.patreon.com slash Chef or www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach. If you contribute just the price of a coffee a month, you will be helping to support the hosting, the purchasing, creation, and production of our shows, episodes, and all of the educational materials we produce and give away for free. Again, those links are www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Dr. Professor Chef or www.buymeacoffee.com slash Chef Roach. And I'll also leave these links in the show description as well. And we truly appreciate any amount of support that you can provide. And I personally thank you in advance for your help. So as mentioned, in today's episode, I want to talk about working memory and how it relates to the learning process. And a few of the books I will be referencing that I highly recommend you read if you want more information on the topic are Upgrade Your Teaching, Understanding by Design Meets Neuroscience by Jay Matigny and Judy Willis. The second book is Brain-Based Teaching in the Digital Age by Mary Lee Sprenger. And the third one is The New Science of Learning, How to Learn in a Harmony with Your Brain by Terry Doyle and Todd Zakrasik. And I will put these uh, links in the show notes as well, in case you want to pick up these books and read them. And as we just talked about in a previous episode on the Chef Educator podcast, which was on memory and learning, not all information processing is conscious. In fact, most of it is not. The brain is constantly taking in sensory stimuli from the outside world, assembling and sorting the stimuli, and then discarding much of that information and directing only some of it into our conscious attention. Now, although consciousness represents a small part of information processing, it is nevertheless an essential component, because without it, we couldn't remember an unfamiliar phone number long enough to dial it or recall the first part of a sentence when we reach the end of that sentence. Although it is important, 
the ability to hold small amounts of information is transient and short-term. Just think about it. We generally forget that unfamiliar phone number as soon as we dial it. And most of us would be unable to repeat the exact words of a sentence that contain more than a few words. And most scientists agree that memory is a multifaceted, complex process that involves activating a large number of neural circuits in many areas of the brain. However, there is no uniform agreement, as of this recording, on a model that accurately represents these many facets. Some researchers view short-term memory and working memory as different processes. Others consider working memory to be part of the short-term memory. And then there are some cognitive scientists who do not believe that working memory and long-term memory are totally separate, but that working memory is really just a portion of long-term memory that is temporarily activated. This is similar to Hebb's view, which we discussed in a previous episode, and that is that memory represents continued activity or reverberations of the neural cells involved in perception. What we do know is that today, most scientists seem to prefer the term working memory as opposed to short-term memory, because the former better characterizes the many complex activities that it represents. And when you think about it, both sensory and working memory are of short duration, so in a sense, they could both be considered short-term. So now let's talk about what working memory is and is not. Working memory allows us to integrate current perceptual information with stored knowledge and to consciously manipulate the information well enough to ensure its storage in long-term memory. In other words, to think about it, to talk about it, and to rehearse it. We should not think of working memory solely as a conduit to a long-term memory, though, because much of the incoming sensory information our brains receive is only needed temporarily, and it is then discarded. We might think of working memory as like a scratch pad that doesn't hold much information and is much more easily lost than a notebook or a larger volume. And although the abilities of working memory are limited, it appears to serve other purposes as well. Cognitive psychologist B.F. Pennington refers to working memory as a computational arena in which information relevant to a current task is both maintained in consciousness and subject to further processing. An example of the computational function of working memory would be what happens when you do mental arithmetic, such as 24 times 8 equals 192. Working memory is also involved in higher cognitive executive functions, such as planning, organizing, and rehearsing. Think of working memory as the CEO of a company responsible for keeping track of who does what and for making sure everything gets done. Now, although working memory appears to reside in multiple locations in the brain, depending on the task it is given, many scientists believe that the frontal lobe, specifically the prefrontal cortex, is the primary location of this activity. So let's talk about its limitations, and then we can focus on some methods for overcoming some of them. The first limitation of working memory deals with its ability to hold on to information. Without rehearsal or constant attention, information remains in working memory for only about 15 to 20 seconds. 
Peterson carried out the first systematic study of this phenomenon in 1957. Now, 15 to 20 seconds may seem to be so brief a memory span as to be almost useless, but a closer look suggests that this is actually pretty efficient. Because if you could not remember the information for at least 20 seconds without rehearsal, you would have already forgotten the words you read at the top of a page when you get to the bottom of the page. And of course, comprehension would then be just about impossible. However, on the other hand, it would be a disadvantage for you to remember permanently every word and every sentence you have ever read in your lifetime. You don't need that more than a small amount of time. Memory system that provides temporary storage of just the right amount of information without overloading itself is indeed efficient. Now, a second limitation of working memory is its inability to process two conscious trains of thought at the same time. For example, in the noisy, confusing environment of a party where many conversations are taking place, you are able to focus only on a single conversation. The brain accomplishes this using selective auditory attention, often referred to as the cocktail party effect. This allows you to filter out other, often louder, conversations and pay attention to the one that is most relevant. However, if you wanted to listen to two conversations simultaneously, you would have difficulty. The same thing happens when we want our students to pay attention to what we are saying and what they are reading at the same time. As nice as it would be to focus on both tasks at the same time, it is very difficult, if not impossible, in most circumstances. And this is especially true if they involve the same sensory modality. For example, when you're talking on the phone and someone in the room wants to give you a message, it is far easier to process that message if it is written rather than spoken. On the same note, consider the typical class lecture where students are required to take notes. Trying to take coherent notes is a difficult task because if the students begin to think about what the teacher just said, they may miss the next input. To compensate for this, students often don't process what is being said, but just write words in the paper with little conceptual understanding of what they just wrote. Of course, if students don't comprehend what is being said, then they don't see the relevance of it. And then, if they don't see the relevance, they can begin to daydream and you know, check out, and then none of the lecture is going to be processed. And I believe every teacher has had the experience of saying something one day and finding that his or her students act as if they've never heard it the very next day. And now we can begin to understand why this might happen. And I want to be clear that doing two things at the same time is different from conscientiously processing two inputs at the same time. Of course, it is certainly possible to do two things at the same time if one of them is automatic. Now recall from past episodes of this podcast when we spoke about neurons and muscle memory. Neurons with the assistance from the cerebellum, may become so used to being activated in a particular sequence that they fire automatically with little or no conscious processing. For example, when your writing becomes automatic, it is no longer necessary to conscientiously determine when to dot an I across a T, which allows us the ability to pay attention to the content of our writing. And the same is true for reading where most of the time we are able to comprehend what we just read because the decoding process is automatic. However, think about a first grade student who still frantically sounds out most of their words in a sentence. And for them, decoding during reading is not automatic. 
and they typically have a very difficult time comprehending what they just read. They are much more focused on the mechanics than they are on the content. Now, a third limitation of working memory is not being able to work with too much information at one time. In the 1950s, cognitive scientist George Miller conducted studies to determine how much information individuals can process consciously. Miller presented subjects with various number of items, and regardless of the type, words, objects, or numerals, the number of items that subjects retained typically proved to be around seven. Miller described this phenomenon in a paper about the magical number seven. His research, of course, validated something we have all known intuitively. Think about it. How many digits are there in a phone number? How many notes in a scale? How many days are in a week? Well, Miller referred to this characteristic of human memory as the span of immediate memory. And further studies have also shown that the number of items that can be held in working memory varies with age. If a test requires a subject to recall, say, strings of digits, the typical five-year-old child can recall only two digits, plus or minus two. At seven years of age, children can recall an average of three digits, plus or minus two. And at 11, the average recall is five digits, plus or minus two. So it turns out that the number of digits children can accurately recall increases by one every two years until a mental age of 15. At this point, the normal adult capacity of 7, plus or minus 2, is reached. However, with that said, we should be cautious in our attempts to determine the capacity of working memory from tests of digits alone. Working memory is much more than a passive storehouse for discrete bits of information. In most learning situations, we are required to hold some bits of information in our consciousness while we manipulate other bits of information that are relevant to the task. So whether we're reading a passage in a text or solving a mathematical problem, the cognitive activity includes interplay of processing and storage. It turns out that tests of working memory that measure our ability to retain some information while simultaneously carrying out ongoing processing activities appear to be more accurate measures of the capacity of working memory in real-life tasks. When these more complex measures are used, we find that age does not predict capacity as reliably as do the difficulty in duration of the task. But working memory is indeed limited. But before we become too discouraged with its space limitations, we need to realize that these limitations can be circumvented somewhat. Understanding and using the methods for overcoming the shortcomings of working memory can greatly increase our students' learning. And the first method of overcoming the limits of working memory that I want to talk about is to chunk information. In discussing the number of items that can be held in immediate memory, Miller noted that the information did not have to be a single, discrete bit of information, but could be chunks of information. And a chunk is defined as any meaningful unit of information. Therefore, grouping information together into like classes or categories is another method of chunking. You know, when you think about it, the difference between 
novices and experts in any field appears to be that experts tend to organize information into very large chunks, while novices work with isolated bits of information. Although we cannot increase the number of chunks that we can store, we can increase the amount of information that can be stored in each chunk by reorganizing or recoding. So it's still seven, but it's seven chunks. And being able to see how information fits together in chunks is therefore a hallmark of learning. It is a way of working with increasing larger amounts of information. One of the inherent problems associated with teaching occurs when we, as teachers, attempt to teach something to another person who cannot yet see the connections that we can. And we may be tempted to give our students the benefit of our experience and tell them what the connections are or how the information fits together. However, this seldom works because the students need to make the connections themselves. Mark Twain is credited with saying, if teaching were the same as telling, we'd all be so smart we could hardly stand it. And he was right, unfortunately. We all know that teaching isn't the same as telling. Teaching is the process of guiding and facilitating the formation of neural connections in students' brains. Think about chess players. They don't become experts by simply listening to someone else tell them how to play. They have to do the work themselves. They have to play thousands of games. They have to become familiar with the patterns and recognize the information to be able to see the chunks. And our students are no different. We provide the experience and the guidance, but they must ultimately do the work. Do the work, do the learning. And what does the work look like? Well, just as working memory's capacities can be increased by chunking, the amount of information stored in long-term memory can be increased by repeated exposure to that information. The process is called rehearsal or practice period. I always say repetition is the key to learning. And there are many ways to rehearse information or a skill. One is rote rehearsal. And that's one method that consists of repeating the information or action over and over. It is what we generally use when we need to remember a phone number from the time we look it up until we dial the phone. That's where we keep repeating that phone number in our head so we don't forget it. It's also what we use to probably learn how to ride a bicycle or type on a keyboard. You know, that practice. Rote rehearsal, however, is much more effective for learning a procedure or a skill or a habit than it is for remembering a phone number. If someone says something to you as you are repeating the phone number, it is quickly lost. You're like, ah, you made me forget it. It is easy to see, though, why rote rehearsal is essential for forming the strong neural connections necessary to get a skill or a habit to the automatic level. Driving a car is an example, as well as uh, reading a book, right? Decoding that text. These all require paying, you know, this conscious attention to it and requires that you practice or rehearse these skills repeatedly. Think about swimming and playing the piano. You don't learn to swim or play the piano by reading a book about it. Although the information in a book may be helpful, it is still necessary to practice the skill repeatedly to develop it to the point where it works well without conscious attention. Benjamin Bloom labeled this automaticity and described it 
as the ability to perform a skill unconsciously with speed and accuracy while consciously carrying out other brain functions. He interviewed numerous experts in a variety of fields and reported that they all devoted a great amount of time to practice and training, up to 50 hours per week. Now, some of the information we teach in school requires students to engage in hours, if not years, of rote rehearsal. Examples include reading, decoding, writing, classroom procedures, and basic arithmetic. Much of the standard curriculum, however, falls into the semantic memory category, where rote rehearsal is not an effective method of practice. Repeatedly rehearsing a dictionary definition, commonly called memorizing, may allow students to write the definition correctly on a test if no one talks to them just before the test. But as every teacher knows, it may not have any meaning or is seldom remembered a week later. And the same is true for comprehending an event in history, an algorithm in mathematics, a formula in chemistry. For these types of learning, elaborative rehearsal strategies are much more effective. Elaborative rehearsal is a broad category encompassing a variety of strategies involving both linking the information to knowledge already stored and repeating the information. These strategies encourage learners to elaborate on information in a manner that enhances understanding and retention of that information. Usually, elaborate strategies increase memory by making the information more meaningful and relevant to learners. Why does elaborate rehearsal work more effectively than rote rehearsal for these types of data? Well, look at some of the research on forgetting and a review of the things we've already learned about the brain and how the brain processes information will help us understand. But first, I want to take a quick pause here at the halfway point in the show to tell you about what I think is a great resource for the culinary or hospitality teacher. And that is a book titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips. It's published by Kendall Hunt, and I co-wrote this comprehensive resource specifically for the new and the seasoned educator. Written in an easy-to-understand style, the book has numerous charts, templates, and examples throughout, and is offered in both electronic and hard copies, for around $40. You can get more information on the book as well as purchase a copy through Amazon or the publisher Kendall Hunt's website, which is www.kendallhunt.com. That's K-E-N-D-A-L-L-H-U-N-T, kendallhunt.com. And of course, I will leave a link in the episode description to this website. Okay, now back to the show. The human brain is consciously scanning the world to make sense of the stimuli that constantly bombards the body. This overarching characteristic of brain functioning is understandable when we recall that the main purpose of the brain is the survival of the individual and of the species. If the brain deemed every stimuli to be important, we would be overloaded to the point of complete inability to make decisions essential for our survival. Fortunately, the brain sifts through all the incoming sensory stimuli and selects those that are the most relevant or meaningful. The brain's determination of what is meaningful and what is not is reflected in the initial perceptual processes and in the conscious processing of information. 
The information storage mechanism of the brain can be best described as networks of associations. These networks are formed over our lifetimes by the experiences we have had. Information that fits into or adds to an existing network has a much better chance of storage than information that doesn't work. What happens when information has no meaning? Well, Herman Eppinghaus conducted one of the first research studies on memory in 1885. His measurement of forgetting was the time he needed to relearn the list until he could recall it with no errors. This method produced a predictable curve, which is now known as Ebbinghaus's curve. It shows what happens to retention of material when there are no previous associations or meanings. In our attempts to help learners store information and improve their ability to recall it, we as teachers need to make certain that what we are teaching is not nonsense to our students' brains. It is essential that we take advantage of the brain's natural proclivity to attend to what is meaningful. And one of the most effective ways to make information meaningful is to associate or compare the new concepts with a known concept. In other words, to hook the unfamiliar with something familiar. And this is often accomplished with analogies, similes, and metaphors. For example, in attempting to explain the concept of parallel lines, a teacher might point out that such lines appear everywhere, such as railroad tracks, the sides of a sheet of paper, uh, doors and window frames. And in doing this, the teacher is forming an association in their students' minds between a foreign mathematical concept and something they already understand. In other words, giving examples. I have also found that it is sometimes helpful to explain how the brain works to my students. And a possible example that I might use to hook this new learning to what they may already know is I would use the library to help explain why the brain organizes information into networks. And I might do this by asking them to think about the process of looking for a book in a library where the volumes are all randomly arranged on shelves. And I ask him, how long would it take you to locate a specific book? Of course, it could be forever. I would then draw the comparison to the human brain, where if information was not stored in networks or categories, retrieval of information would take much longer. You, of course, would use examples best understood by your specific students, because the most effective associations link new learning to something that is personally relevant to students. For example, this is why teachers sometimes use sports results to teach students how to calculate percentages, or why they introduce the concept of math families to younger learners. By personally relating examples to your students, it's also a good reason why it's good to get to know your students, so you can come up with those examples that would relate to the specific student. Some things that students need to have at their fingertips, however, have little inherent meaning and it is hard to come up with relatable examples. When meaning or relevance is difficult to establish, you, know, you can't come up with examples, such as remembering the letters of the alphabet or the stages of cell division. What helps in this case is using a mnemonic device. And this is an effective, elaborate technique. Acronyms are also a good way to associate a list of items in order with a known word or sentence, thereby making them much easier to remember. And those are also great tips to help 
information stay around a little bit longer in working memory. Now, in a previous episode, we talked about how emotions strongly influence whether or not the brain initially pays attention to information. The short pathway between the thalamus and the amygdala ensures that we react quickly to emotional relevant information. When we face emotionally or in potentially dangerous situations, the information is formed with extra vividness, which results in enhanced memories. Our own experiences and a lot of research validate this. Think about it. We remember events that elicit emotional reactions for a longer time than those that don't. So to understand this and why this happens, we need to take a look at the neurochemical nature of the stress response. The chemical chain of events involved in the stress response begins with the perception of an emotionally relevant event. The psychological sentinel of the brain, the amygdala, sends a message via the hypothalamus that engages the entire body and readies it to meet the demand of the situation. Many hormones are involved in carrying out these bodily responses, commonly called the stress response. Now, during the stress response, heart rate increases, blood pressure goes up, senses become more alert, muscles tense, our palms become sweaty, blood clotting elements increase in the bloodstream, and all movement centers become mobilized. Simultaneously, Cortical memory systems retrieve any knowledge relevant to the emergency at hand and take precedence over other strands of thought. But stress does not heighten or increase all systems, because some actually are curbed. For example, the digestive and immune systems are suppressed during the stress response because they are not immediately essential to what's happening, which is also why when we are under prolonged stress, we get sick easier. Now, the response system obviously is critical for survival. It can save our life. What does it have to do with memory, though? Well, the neurochemical system that primes the body for an emergency also stamps that moment in memory with extra vividness. Epinephrine and adrenaline, which are secreted by the adrenal medulla to activate the automatic responses we were just talking about, find their way back to the temporal lobe of the brain. The action of these hormones in this area enhances memory for the event that activated the stress response. Studies by the University of California, Irvine, showed that injecting rats with epinephrine right after they learn something enhanced their memory of the learning situation. Another researcher, Larry Cahill, demonstrated the same effect in humans using epinephrine a little differently but producing a similar result. Under normal circumstances, subjects showed enhanced memory for emotional pictures over neutral ones. When Cahill gave his subjects epinephrine-blocking drugs soon after viewing an emotional-laden picture, their recall of the emotional pictures decreased, and they did not remember them with any more frequency than they did the neutral pictures. Based on this research, this suggests that if adrenaline or epinephrine is released naturally from the adrenal gland, it's some, in some situations, that experience will be remembered especially well. Since emotional arousal usually results in the release of adrenaline, it might be expected that explicit conscious memory of emotional situations would be stronger than the explicit memory of non-emotional situations. 
The researcher Cahill proposed that anything we can do as teachers that engages students' emotional and motivational interests will quite naturally involve this system and result in stronger memories of whatever engaged their attention. Now, although investigators conducted most of the research in the area of fear, it also holds true for even mildly emotional or positive events. For example, this mechanism should be just as involved whether you experience something positive, such as winning the lottery, or something negative, such as hearing about a terrible, tragic event. However, the more intense the arousal, the stronger the imprint. It is almost as if the brain has two memory systems, one for ordinary facts and one for those that are emotionally charged. Therefore, as educators, we need to recognize the power that emotion has to increase retention and plan our classroom instructions accordingly and add an emotional hook to learning if possible. How can we do that? Well, simulations and role-playing often are highly engaging and enhance not only the meaning of the material, but the emotional connection as well. Teachers who have students act out a particular event from history or actively form a mathematical equation using fellow students are increasing those students' chances of retention. Simply setting up a grocery store in the classroom for the you know younger grades to teach students about the value of money or how to figure change is certainly more likely to hook into the emotional motivational network than it would be to complete a worksheet on the same subject. Solving real-world problems is another way to raise the emotional and motivational stakes. You know, active learning. Effective teachers, perhaps without knowing the neurological basis for the effect emotion has on learning, intuitively design ways to make the information that students study more meaningful in emotion. They do this by bringing in guest speakers, uh, taking students on field trips, holding mock trials or debates, uh, designing experiments so students discover the process, having students build models or take notes by mind mapping. And there's countless other activities out there that we could do. Think back on your own experience as a student. Which ones stood out to you? Think back, which activities like you still remember to this day? Chances are you'll be able to remember the emotional component of those experiences that caused you to remember them over all the others. Now let's talk about the flip side of emotion. If you have no stress in your life, you probably won't get out of bed in the morning. But if you have too much stress in your life, then chances are you won't get out of bed in the morning. As with many things, more is not necessarily better. We need that balance, especially when it comes to the stress response. The ability to experience and talk about our emotions is a singularly wonderful human quality, but it has its downside. The stress response was designed for life in caves, but the situation has obviously changed. We don't live in caves anymore. The contemporary human brain, though, does not distinguish between physical and psychological danger, and in either case, it sets the same psychological chain of events in motion. If you come face to face with a grizzly bear while out for a walk in the woods, then an increase in blood pressure, a release of the blood clotting elements into the bloodstream, and a suppression of the immune system makes for a fine reaction. We want that to happen, right? Life or death. However, this may not be particularly helpful when someone pulls into our parking space that we thought was ours at the mall. The stress response, with its release of cortisol and epinephrine, was designed to last a relatively short time until you either outran the grizzly bear or became its dinner. 
In contemporary life, however, we often extend the response even more by then talking about the stressful event, reliving it, or worrying that it will happen again. We have a tendency to keep ourselves in a chronic, prolonged state of fight or flight with potentially negative consequences. High concentrations of cortisol over a long period can provoke hippocampal deterioration and cognitive decline. With prolonged stress, the immune system is compromised, increasing the risk of illness, acceleration of disease, and retardation of growth. And it is obvious that students can and do suffer the same stress-related disorders as adults. For example, in the classroom, a student can perceive even a mild stressor to be threatening, which initiates the stress response, lessening his or her ability to perform. As a teacher, you probably have no difficulty thinking of circumstances during which that could happen to a student, such as when they're being bullied or laughed at, when they're taking part in a timed test, or they're being called on when they're not prepared, to name just a few. Under these conditions, emotion is dominant over cognition, and the rational thinking cortex is less efficient. Have you ever received an insult and not been able to think of a response or a retort until the next day? Why does the stress response impede rational thinking and learning? Well, the answer can be found at the cellular level. And here it is. In order for a connection to be made at the synopsis, proteins need to be synthesized in the cell. Stress releases cortisol, which makes energy available for emergency situations, and it also results in a shutdown of protein synthesis. In addition, the hippocampus appears to be especially vulnerable to the destructive effects of cortisol, which may result in deficits to learning new information. So, in conclusion, emotion is a double-edged sword with the ability to either enhance or impede learning. And understanding the biological underpinnings of emotion helps us as educators see why we need to provide emotionally healthy and exciting school environments to promote the optimal learning in our students. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of the Chef Educator Podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. And your feedback and comments are always welcome because they help us in making the best show possible. So please let us know what you think about this episode or the show in general. You can email us your thoughts, your suggestions, your comments, testimonials, good or bad, to foodmedianetwork at gmail.com. Or you can even leave us a voicemail on our audience response hotline. That's area code 207-835-1275. Again, that's area code 207-835-1275. Leave us a message. Maybe we'll even read it on a future episode. Or give us ideas of some shows that you want to see. And don't forget to buy us a cup of coffee or two at www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach or through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash drprofessorchef. We truly appreciate any help you can provide. Well, until we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. The Chef Educator Podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network.